I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Petaluma, California. The city is located in California's Sonoma Wine Country, which is about 40 miles north of San Francisco. The modern city originated from Rancho Petaluma, granted in 1834 to famed statesman Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. He is considered to be the founder of Petaluma. The city was first chartered in 1848 and is one of California's oldest cities. During the gold rush era, the city was transformed from a quaint agricultural establishment into a prosperous commercial spot. In the 21st century, Petaluma is known for its unique blend of traditional and trendy. It has many activities such as wine tours, world-class restaurants, museums, and galleries, while maintaining its hometown feel. But in 1993, evil had made itself known in their charming and picturesque town when one young girl was targeted by a predator, and their world was never the same again. In 1993, Washington was the first state to pass a three-strikes law, sometimes known as a habitual offender law. Under these statutes, if a perpetrator has two convictions for two prior serious or violent offenses, a third conviction will result in a life sentence. California approved its three-strikes law the following year. It was in response to the murders of 18-year-old Kimber Reynolds and 12-year-old Polly Class. This is Polly's story. It was Friday, October 1st, 1993. 12-year-old Polly Class invited two friends from school, Kate and Jillian, to spend the night at her house. The three girls were excited to have a slumber party and figure out their costumes for Halloween. Polly Class lived with her mom, Eve Nickel, and her six-year-old sister, Annie, in Petaluma, California. Polly's parents divorced when she was just three years old, but she was still very close with her dad, Mark Class. She saw her dad every weekend and spoke to him almost daily. Now, one thing we wanted to note about Polly's last name and how we're pronouncing it, when we were in California and we heard about this case, everybody pronounced the last name as Kloss. However, since then, we have access to YouTube videos <laughs> and her father has been on these videos several times and he pronounces it class. So back to the evening of October 1st, Jillian arrived at Polly's house a little after 7 p.m. Kate would not be there for a little while longer. So the two girls walked to a nearby convenience store to get popsicles. Kate got to Polly's house about 8.30 p.m. Her mom parked the car in the driveway and then walked Kate to the front door before leaving. By 9 p.m., the slumber party was in full swing. It was nearing Halloween, so the trio was trying to figure out what they would dress up as. They were talking loudly, they were giggling, eating ice cream, as they tried on different costume ideas. Kate had dressed up like a hippie, and Jillian had put makeup on Polly to make her look like a zombie. Around 10 p.m., Polly's mother, Miss Nickel, told the girls not to stay up too late and keep the noise down. Even though her bedroom was separated from Polly's bedroom by a bathroom and another bedroom, she and Polly's little sister Annie were going to sleep in Miss Nickel's bed. Although Miss Nickel had just reminded the girls about the noise level, she was certain that the girls would get loud again soon, as they do during a slumber party. Absolutely. So she took a prescription sleeping pill to make sure she got a good night's rest. So for the next half hour, the girls entertained themselves by playing board games and video games. 
Polly washed off her zombie makeup and changed back into her denim skirt and pink blouse. By 10.30, the girls were getting tired and decided it was time to get ready for bed. Polly opened her bedroom door to get some sleeping bags and was startled by a man standing in the hallway holding a knife and a bag. Is that not like every child's terror of having that happen to them? I can't imagine. I can't either. Think of the terror that just flashed through her. Polly's friends Kate and Jillian thought they were being pranked, but it didn't take them long to realize they were all in grave danger. The man warned the girls that if they screamed, he would slit their throats. He promised not to hurt them, however, if they did what he said. He wanted to know why there were so many girls in the bedroom and which one of them lived in the house. He was surprised when Polly told him that her mother was in the house, but that did not make him leave. By now, the girls were crying, and he repeatedly told them not to be scared because he was only there to get some money. When he asked where the valuables were, Polly told him that she had a little money in her jewelry box. She also begged him not to hurt her mother and her sister. The man ordered the three girls to lie face down on the floor and not to look at him. He tied the girls up using strips of a cloth, cords that he had cut from Polly's Nintendo machine, and a strap from Polly's leather purse. He also gagged them with some cloth he found in the room. This man then removed the pillowcases from the pillows in the bedroom and placed them over the girls' heads. The man then told the girls that he was going to take Polly so she could show him where the valuables were hidden in the house. But he said he would return her to the bedroom and would be gone by the time they counted to 1,000. The man then took Polly from the bedroom, and as he walked out the door, he promised he would not touch her. When Polly did not return after a few minutes, Jillian and Kate managed to free themselves. They went to Ms. Nichols' bedroom and told her what happened. The three of them searched all around the house for Polly without finding her. It was 11 p.m., one hour after Ms. Nichols said goodnight to the girls, when Polly's mom called 911. Can you imagine that poor mother? And she probably is thinking to herself, if I didn't have a sleeping pill, maybe I would have heard. All the what ifs. Officers from the Petaluma Police Department responded immediately. The only thing that Ms. Nickel could identify as being missing from the house was a pair of red tights. Investigators noted how the girls were bound with cut strips of cloth, a Nintendo cord, and a purse strap. That the intruder used items found in Polly's bedroom led detectives to believe the man was not expecting an encounter with more than one person. Clothes and makeup were strewn about, and police were discouraged by the lack of physical evidence they were able to collect from Polly's room. One officer suggested that they take the bedroom rug as evidence. Although other officers did not agree, this particular officer insisted that it could be potentially useful. Shortly after midnight, just 90 minutes after Polly was abducted, the Federal Bureau of Investigation arrived at Polly's house. Special Agent Ed Fryer was the lead investigator. He had experience with resolving kidnappings and he knew the local community. FBI agents first looked at Polly's family and friends as possible suspects. Most child abductions are carried out by family members, typically non-custodial parents. As a result, Polly's mother, Eve Nickel, and her father, Mark Klass, were immediately brought in for questioning. But it did not take long for investigators to clear both of them as potential suspects. Agent Fryer now knew he was dealing with a stranger abduction case. 
And he knew all too well that these are some of the hardest cases to solve because there is often nothing that directly connects the victim and the perpetrator. Around 4 a.m., the FBI called in its evidence response team. Now, the ERT is an elite unit within the Bureau and is specifically trained to collect evidence using the absolutely most sophisticated resources available. And I'm sure in 1993, there was a big difference between what local departments had and what the FBI had. Oh, I'm sure it was huge. Tony Maxwell was in charge of the team, and he was well aware of the statistics surrounding child kidnappings. Police forces have to act quickly. Typically, perpetrators will harm or kill the child within the first 24 hours, so it was imperative to gather as much information as quickly as possible. Because of the heightened use of technology, the FBI was able to find four dozen fingerprints. Unfortunately, all of them belonged to family members or to Polly's two friends. But after hours of searching, the emergency response team found an unidentified palm print and the team hoped it was from the intruder and not a family member. The palm print was on the crossbar of Polly's bunk bed leading investigators to hope that the intruder had leaned on it. However, in 1993, the FBI's fingerprint database only contained fingerprints and not palm prints. A sketch artist from the San Rafael Police Department was called in to sit with Polly's friends. For two hours, Jillian and Kate recollected everything that they could think of about the man who entered Polly's bedroom. By early morning, nearly 75 FBI agents and 50 Petaluma police officers canvassed Polly's neighborhood for evidence, and they covered every inch. Helicopters and bloodhounds were also brought in. Agents searched every house in the neighborhood, and neighbors were interviewed by pairs of agents one at a time. Several people saw a stranger roaming the neighborhood that matched the description that was given by Polly's friends. They also went to Polly's school to talk to teachers and students to see if anyone had any useful information. 16-year-old Thomas Georges told investigators he and some friends were walking to a video store at around 9 p.m. that night. This was just 30 minutes after Kate's mom dropped her off. They saw a strange man standing in front of Polly's house. Thomas told officers he was familiar with every person in the neighborhood, and he immediately knew this person was an outsider. When Thomas and his friends returned home from the video store, the boys saw the stranger still standing there. This actually made sense to police because they interviewed the mother of Polly's friend, Kate, and she told them she had a strange encounter with a man who was walking toward her car when it was parked in Ms. Nichols' driveway. Her description of the man was similar to the girl's description as well as Thomas George's. Kate's mom, who, as you'll recall, dropped Kate off about 8.30, told investigators that when she parked the car so she could walk her daughter up to the front door, she actually only parked halfway in the driveway so she was blocking the sidewalk. When she got back to her car, she noticed a man with long salt and pepper black hair pulled into a ponytail, carrying a duffel bag, walking very fast toward her car to the point that she thought he was going to ram into it. That is so bizarre. So to avoid him, she said she quickly got into her car and just peeled out of the driveway. And the man just kept walking. But he turned his face so she couldn't see what he looked like. You mean how she was backing out? Yeah. Oh, wow. So this would have been 30 minutes before Thomas Georges and his friend saw this guy staring at the house. Correct. A teenage girl who lived near Polly's house told investigators that the night Polly was abducted, she went to a movie with her uncle. 
She was dropped off at her home around 1030, but when she was getting out of the car, she saw a man carrying a duffel bag and walking towards her house. So she told the officers that she was really leery of homeless people, so she asked her uncle to wait until the scary-looking man had passed. And as the man passed their car, he covered his face with his hands so they couldn't see who he was. She described the man as wearing dark clothes and having combed back, shoulder-length, salt-and-pepper hair. Now, Aaron Thomas was a young man who rented the granny flat, or the in-law unit, as some people call it, behind Polly's single-story home. On the night of the abduction, Aaron, his girlfriend, and his friend Sean were watching a movie together. Sean went outside to smoke a cigarette on the porch. He said it was about 10.30 p.m. when he noticed a man with bushy hair walking toward the back porch of Polly's house. And Kathy, what was strange about that, it appears from the description in the court records that there was no bathroom in the granny flat, or maybe they had one that didn't work. But nonetheless, the residents of the granny flat or their visitors had to use the bathroom in Polly's house. And there was an access door to the bathroom from the back porch. So basically what Sean sees is this man walking calmly and slowly. And then the man noticed Sean observing him and turned away and reached for the bathroom door. Unaware that something sinister was going on, Sean just went back inside and finished watching the movie. Investigators widened their scope to former prison inmates who were registered sex offenders in Sonoma County. They then looked at surrounding counties and questioned each person who fit their criteria. By the second day after Polly's abduction, thousands of residents from surrounding communities joined the search for her. It became the largest manhunt in U.S. history. Many community volunteers passed out flyers to try to help authorities, and in two days, 50,000 flyers were distributed. Meanwhile, forensic expert Chris Allen began examining fibers found on Polly's bedroom rug. He determined that they came from the interior carpet of an automobile. With this information, he eliminated the cars that belonged to Polly's parents. Investigators now knew if they found a suspicious vehicle, they would be able to cross-reference it with the fibers Chris Allen had examined. A search center was set up with a 24-hour phone station. The center received 60,000 incoming calls, which were all reported to the FBI. Based on those calls, authorities followed up on 12,000 leads. 48 hours after Polly's abduction, Mr. Class received a telephone call. It sounded like Polly. She said her abductor had left the room for a minute and she thought she was being held in a hotel room. Then the line went dead. Mr. Class's telephone line was not set up to trace a call. So despite this glimmer of hope, all authorities could do was wait for another call. A few days later, Mark Class got a second phone call from Polly. This time, investigators were ready. Polly said she could only talk for a short amount of time but it was long enough for authorities to trace it. The call was traced to a house 30 miles away. When agents got there, they were not expecting what they found at this house. This house turned out to be a typical suburban household, nothing out of the ordinary, and no one at the home admitted to knowing Polly or what happened to her. Upon further investigation, agents realized that one of the girls in the household was dared by her classmates to impersonate Polly and call Mr. Class. 
After a week of searching, this was the only thing that had given the class family any sense of hope. And in the end, it proved to be a cruel joke. Kids do dumb things all the freaking time. But imagine this woman knowing as an adult the impact of your actions. That would be really a difficult cross to bear, honestly. All I could think was is that as she got older, I hope she turned her life into something that was purposeful and service driven. A reward was offered for anyone who could lead police to Polly's location. And it was after that that authorities received a call that asked for a $10,000 ransom. They were able to trace the call to a Petaluma apartment, so a SWAT team was dispatched. Unfortunately, it turned out to be just another hoax. The 20-year-old man who had made the call was arrested for attempted extortion and posing as a kidnapper. More than two weeks after Polly's abduction, on October 17, 1993, the San Francisco Examiner published a letter from Polly's parents to their daughter's kidnapper. Her family had not given up hope, and Americans across the country held candlelight vigils to support her family. Now, Kath, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'm just going to read a little bit of the article that was published in the San Francisco Examiner. It said, Our beautiful 12-year-old daughter, Polly, was kidnapped at knife point from her house full of friends and family in Petaluma at approximately 10.30 p.m. Friday, October 1st, 1993. It is now 16 days later, and there is no trace of Polly or her abductor. Our sorrow is so deep. Our soul is so empty. Words cannot express the tremendous emptiness that we feel. We miss Polly so much. Whoever you are, wherever you are, please return Polly to her family. She belongs here. She is part of us. We are part of her. Our darling, if you can read this, please know that your mommy and daddy love you so much and we will continue to search for you until we can hold you safely in our loving arms again. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at bet mgm 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Dana Jaffe lived with her 12-year-old daughter on 192 acres in a rural area of Sonoma County. On November 27, 1993, this is now almost two months after Polly was kidnapped, she was inspecting some of her acreage. At the bottom of a private road that led to her property, Dana discovered a clearing just outside her gate. She was curious because it looked like someone had intentionally cleared the ground cover in what was a heavily wooded area. In this clearing, Dana saw several odd items strewn about. When she got back to the house, she called the sheriff's office and left a message. When she did not hear back from them, she called again the next morning. Deputy Sheriff Mike McManus arrived at the house shortly after that, and she led the deputy to the clearing. On the ground, there was a large piece of silk cloth that had been clearly used as a headscarf from the way it was tied. So Kathy, kind of imagine a bandana, and back in the 70s, and probably now, because that seems to have come back, girls wear it around their heads. Among the items found were a pair of child-sized red-knitted tights that had been tied into a knot and an adult-sized dark sweatshirt that was turned inside out. Deputy McManus and Dana also found a condom lying on the ground next to a torn condom wrapper, two pieces of strapping tape, a beer bottle, and a book of matches. When Dana was talking to Deputy McManus, she recounted for him an incident that happened on her property on October 1st, the night of Polly's kidnapping. She told the deputy that she got home from work around 11 p.m. Her daughter's 19-year-old babysitter, Shannon, left Dana's house about 15 minutes later. As Shannon was driving down the road, now, Kath, this was a private road that led to Dana's house, and at the bottom of the road, there was a gate. So as Shannon was driving down the private road, but before she reached the gate, she noticed a Ford Pinto stuck in a ditch. And there was a man hunched over the rear bumper. And as she drove up, he appeared surprised to see someone at the end of this dark road. And then Shannon drove closer and stopped the car. The man approached her and Shannon recalls that he was wearing a dark colored sweatshirt that was inside out. And he had leaves stuck in his hair. And apparently he raped. The man told Shannon his car was stuck and asked for some rope. Now, Kath, this kind of impressed me. Instead of helping him, she basically said, you're illiterate because you ignored the signs that said no trespassing in private road. <laughs> OK, I got to admit she's clanking. Clanking. But that does not impress me. You and I totally had a different take on this. Yeah, we did. I was like, go, girl. And I was like, why are you putting yourself in danger, girl? Get out of there. Anyway, so in response, the man basically placed his hands on the window of the car and insisted she get out. He also demanded that Shannon tell him what was farther up the road. So, of course, she stayed in the car and told him that the only thing up the road was people who were going to call the police. She then drove to the nearest payphone and called Dana. Now, this was at 1124 p.m. And she urged Dana to call the police. So Dana, who was there alone with her 12-year-old daughter, was immediately terrified. And she woke up her daughter and they ran and got in their car. And she brought a baseball bat with her just in case. I got to tell you, Kath, the idea of living on 192 acres with a 12-year-old, nothing else around, that would scare me to death. You would never know who was on your road or who was on your property. You would never know who might be in your house when you're sleeping. 
You know, and it's so funny because I always fantasize about having a second home on a bunch of land, but I know myself. And if I did have a second home on a bunch of land, I would be just wondering who is watching me. Yeah. (laughs) But this makes me think of the fact that it doesn't even matter if you're in a city because your brother and his family had something like this happen. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. My brother and his wife were sleeping and they had a daughter at the time who was probably 13 or 14. She's sleeping. My sister-in-law wakes up in the middle of the night because she sees a dark figure in her bedroom. It was an intruder and she believes this person was trying to get her purse, which was on the side of her bed. I don't know if it was on the ground or the nightstand. I don't remember that detail. But here's what's scary. The side of her bed is furthest from the door. So this person walked around the foot of the bed past my brother's side when my sister-in-law woke up. And you know what's crazy to me about that is that whoever the intruder was searched the whole rest of the house looking for stuff before going into the bedroom. Presumably. Well, yeah, you assume so. Yeah. Especially in an occupied bedroom. Yes. So my sister-in-law screams, there's someone in our house. The guy runs. My brother bolts out of bed and yells at the top of his lungs, get my gun, because he wanted to scare the guy off. And then he immediately ran in, saw that his daughter was fine, and then chased the guy. But the guy had a decent lead. And of course, the police came and they found various items strewn in the neighbor's bushes and places as he left. So they were able to they were able to actually print the stuff and find the guy. But you're right. You can have neighbors on either side of you and things still can go south. Yeah. You know, things still go bump in the night. Right. Okay, so Dana and her daughter are in the car. She wants to leave her property. So she drives down her road toward the gate and passes the car. But as she passes the car, she doesn't see anyone near it. You know, I think this is also smart because even if somebody had been there, as we all know, especially as women, cars are weapons. Oh, totally. So Dana drove past the vehicle to a payphone and immediately called the police. Now, this was 1146 p.m., which was an hour and 15 minutes after Polly was kidnapped. But of course, that was unknown to the world at the time. So about 15 minutes later, Sonoma County Sheriff's deputies Mike Rankin and Thomas Howard arrived in separate cars at Dana Jaffe's house. Even though this was just a short time after Polly was abducted, the police officers were not aware that this had happened because the Sonoma County Sheriff's Department and the Petaluma Police Department used different radio frequencies. Dana led the officers to where she saw the man's car. When they arrived there, he was leaning on his car, smoking a cigarette. As the babysitter described, he had leaves in his hair, but he was not wearing a dark colored sweatshirt that was inside out. Instead, the man was wearing a striped yellow and blue button down long sleeve shirt. Dana told the man he was trespassing on private property. The man claimed that he tried to turn around and leave and ended up stuck in a ditch. Dana told him that the officers would help him, and then she turned around and went back to her house. Deputies Howard and Rankin noted that the man was sweating profusely and reeked of alcohol. When Deputy Rankin patted the man down, he noticed that the man's driver's license identified him as Richard Allen Davis. When Deputy Rankin asked the man if he was on parole, which is a common question that officers will ask somebody, the man denied it and said he had never been to prison. Although Davis smelled of alcohol, Deputy Howard did not think he was intoxicated because of his speech and balance. Davis consented to a search of his Ford Pinto. In it, officers found a paper bag on the floor with three or four unopened beer cans. They also found two bags containing clothes, some that were torn. Dispatch ran Davis's driver's license and nothing warranted suspicion. Davis's record returned clean. Officers were finally able to pull his car out of the ditch. 
and after Davis passed several field sobriety tests, Deputy Rankin escorted him off Dana Jaffe's property. So on this November day, as Dana and Deputy McManus were standing in the clearing talking about the incident that happened eight weeks prior, it started to rain. Deputy McManus was concerned about the damage to the evidence on the items that were previously mentioned. The tights, the silky cloth, the condom, the inside out sweatshirt, all that kind of stuff he was worried about. So what he did was put it in a box rather than follow the normal evidence collection protocol. However, he left the condom on the ground and asked the FBI team to come out and collect it and take photographs. Once back at the station, Deputy McManus looked to see if Richard Davis had a criminal background. He did. Davis's prior records showed arrests and convictions for kidnapping and assault. The records also showed that Davis was on parole after serving an eight-year sentence. He had clearly lied to the deputies when they confronted him on Dana's property. You know, Kath, we said one of the deputies had run Davis's driver's license. Mm -hmm. At this time, the system that the police were using only showed a suspect's driving record. It did not show a criminal record if they had one. So they had to go into the station to look on the computers there. Correct. Which was what Deputy McManus did. So once Deputy McManus figured all this out, he sent the box of items that he collected to the Petaluma Police Department. Now, Petaluma Police Sergeant Michael Meese took the items and brought in the FBI. The next day, the FBI confirmed that the white cloth that they believed was used as a headscarf or something that was found in the clearing matched pieces of cloth found in Polly's bedroom. Sergeant Meese then discovered that Richard Davis was charged with a DUI three weeks after Polly was kidnapped. Now, the DUI was in Mendocino County, which is about three hours north, but this criminal charge constituted a parole violation. And although there was insufficient probable cause to arrest him for Polly's kidnapping, Petaluma issued an arrest warrant for the parole violation. Davis's parole officer told them where he was staying, and it was with his sister in Mendocino County. On November 30th, 1993, almost two months from the day Polly Class was abducted, Petaluma police officers and FBI agents arrested Davis at his sister's house without incidents on his parole violation warrant. They also seized his car and belongings. And Kath, Davis had changed his appearance by shaving off his beard. At the Mendocino County Sheriff's Department, Davis was processed and printed. Then he was confronted by Petaluma police and the FBI about Polly Class's kidnapping. Sergeant Meese urged Davis that if there was any chance Polly was still alive, to let him know where to find her. Davis denied any involvement in the abduction. Two days later, forensics matched the palm print found inside Polly's bedroom on her bunk bed to Richard Davis. A couple of days after that, Davis asked to speak with Sergeant Meese. Davis told him over the telephone, I effed up big time. He admitted that Polly was dead and agreed to help investigators find her body. That same afternoon, Sergeant Meese, Sonoma County District Attorney Investigator Mike Griffith, and FBI agent Larry Taylor questioned Davis for two hours. Davis told them after being paroled, he was living at a halfway house, but had applied for an overnight pass to visit his mother. Davis said that he went to Petaluma on October 1st to talk with his mom, but he couldn't get a hold of her. 
So he went to a park, drank some beers, and roamed the streets. After that, he bought more beer and a joint, which he claimed possibly contained PCP. He said that after he smoked the joint, his memory was blurry. He was unsure where he was or what he was doing. Davis told investigators he did recall entering a home through a window. Now, this is a point of interest that Kathy and I have both spoken about because it did not say this anywhere in the Court of Appeal opinion. However, we both remember hearing that it was a window when this case broke back in 1993. Or when a press conference was held, perhaps it was revealed that this is what he said and the newspapers ran with it. So the point is, we do not know if he went in a window or was able to get in the exterior bathroom door that we discussed previously. Davis said once he was in the house, he heard some voices in a room and said that he had never seen Polly Class before that point. He remembered tying the three girls up with items he found in the bedroom. He then recalled driving and suddenly realized that he had Polly in the front seat of the car. She complained that the bindings were too tight and her hands were going numb. And she kept saying she just wanted to go home. Davis told investigators that he drove around for a while, confused about what to do. Then he got lost driving on a rural road, and this is where his car eventually got stuck on Dana Jaffe's property. Davis said he then untied Polly and placed her on the embankment where she was not visible from the road. She stayed there while he tried to free the car, and that was when deputies arrived. Um, I have a little bit of a problem with this because he was telling investigators at that point that Polyclass was alive and right near him when deputies got there and completely missed seeing her. I agree with you, Kath. It totally stretches the bounds of reality to presume that Polly was hanging out unbound on this embankment as deputies were helping him get his car out of the ditch. Well, exactly. And it wasn't like they just had contact with him and drove on their merry way. They had to get a chain. They had to get their trucks. They like, had this to pull was them subs- out of the ditch. And subs- she's just there like, oh, let me know when you guys are done. I'm just waiting here. Yeah, they were there a substantial amount of time and were expected to believe that she just sat there. Right. BS. Agreed. Because this would have been about an hour after she was kidnapped. And I believe investigators later opined that she probably was already dead by that time. After his encounter with deputies, Davis tells detectives that he waited about 30 minutes to ensure the coast was clear. Then he drove back and picked up Polly. He said he drove to a gas station bathroom for her to use. But then as he was driving away from the gas station, he realized that he would have to kill Polly in order to avoid returning to prison. Davis then admitted that he strangled her with a piece of knotted cloth. Then to ensure that she was dead, he cinched a piece of cord tightly around her neck. He told him that he then covered her body with pieces of wood that he found nearby. He specifically said that he did not remember raping her and does not think that he tried to. After learning this new information from the interview with Richard Davis in tow, Petaluma Police Sergeant Meese, FBI Agent Taylor, and Sonoma County District Attorney Investigator Griffith followed Davis's direction to where he buried Polly. They arrived at Dutcher Creek Road just off Highway 101. Davis pointed to where he left her body. It was near an abandoned mill out in a field. Although they believed that Davis had been lying about her location, they did find Polly's body. It was badly deteriorated and covered with wood and nearby shrubs. Her skeletonized skull was separated from the rest of her body, believed to be the result of wildlife. 
Parts of her body, including her arms and legs, were practically mummified, and part of her body was covered by the nightgown that Jillian had brought to the slumber party. The pink blouse she was wearing the night she was abducted was untied, and her white denim skirt was pulled up above her hips. She was still wearing her bra and underwear. Strands of Polly's hair had a braided rope and knotted cloth tangled within them. The pathologist, Dr. A.J. Chapman, said that Polly's exact cause of death could not be determined. Her body was too badly decayed. However, he said that the rope and knotted cloth that had strands of hair could have fit around her neck. So strangulation could have been the cause of her death. During the autopsy, when members of the FBI's evidence response team examined the remnants of Polly's underwear with an alternate light source, a stain indicated the possible presence of semen. Further forensic testing, however, did not detect any semen at that location, which meant that either semen was never present or that it was present and had been degraded too much to be detected. Davis denied that he raped Polly. But Sergeant Meese told him they found semen during an examination of Polly's remains. And Davis asked, where? Sergeant Meese said, on the body. And Davis replied, not in her, though. When Sergeant Meese asked how semen could have wound up on Polly's body, Davis said, look, I told you at least it wasn't in her. Examination of the condom and the condom wrapper found at Dana's property did not reveal the presence of any fingerprints or biological evidence. Davis also told Sergeant Meese during the interview that he was concerned that he would be mistreated in prison if other inmates considered him a child killer and a molester. At the end of the interview, Davis said, I have to see what comes out of forensic. Hope nothing comes up. Hope nothing's in there. After Richard Davis's arrest was made public, his long history of violent crimes was revealed. He was arrested in 1976, 1978, and 1984 for kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and armed robbery. In fact, he was also arrested several more times for assault with a deadly weapon. For his latest felony, Davis served eight years in prison before being paroled in 1993. It was just a couple of months after he was granted parole that he kidnapped and killed Polly Class. Polly's family, friends, the state, and the nation were horrified. And then California residents got busy trying to ensure that a habitual predator like Richard Davis would never be released from prison. As we mentioned at the beginning, California's three strikes law went into effect within a year of Polly's abduction and murder. Although case law and legislative actions have since modified the three strikes law, at the time, the residents of California felt repeatedly victimized by the revolving door of prison and because of Polly's family, became acutely aware of the impact serious crimes had on all its victims. The state of California versus Richard Allen Davis did not go to trial until 1996. After 10 weeks of trial, the jury found Davis guilty on all counts, including first-degree murder, kidnapping, robbery, and attempting to commit a lewd act on a child. In all, the jury found that Davis had four prior serious felony convictions and had served three prior prison terms. And as a result, the three strikes law would have applied. So, Kath, this entire trial, all 10 weeks of it, had been televised. After the jury returned its verdict during the guilt phase, Davis turned around 
flipped a double bird to the cameras, then winked and blew a kiss. Ah, disgusting pawn scum. During the penalty phase of the trial, prosecutors described Polly Class as funny, intelligent, and beautiful, an absolutely extraordinary child who was warm-hearted with a sunny disposition and an infectious laugh. She played the piano and the clarinet and had a particular love for acting. She was afraid of being alone in the dark. And Kath, this next part actually reminds me of one of our other cases we did, Jennifer Shewitt in Dickinson, Texas. Polly was also afraid of being alone in the dark, often sleeping with her lights on and fearful that a bad man would come and take her in the night. That is exactly like Jennifer Shewitt. It is. But you know what? It also speaks to the imagination of children. Polly's mother, Eve Nickel, who had been in a state of anguish since her daughter's abduction, could not bring herself to testify. Polly's father, Mark Class, did testify. In the weeks before Polly's remains were discovered, he helped establish a volunteer center to direct the search for her. And Kath, after learning that Polly was dead, he said he went berserk and became so enraged that members of his family had to restrain him. Having seen this guy on TV, I believe that, you know, like he was so passionate and fervent and firm and strong. Kath, I saw an interview that he did and he said up until the point the police told him that his daughter was dead, he believed with every fiber of his being she was alive, which is why when he was told she was dead, he went berserk. And he actually said in this interview, he was really glad that there were male family members around him when this happened because he needed them to control him so he didn't hurt anybody in their family. Oh, I can't imagine. The guy just exuded rage and anger and he just channeled it into... Into doing what he could to help his daughter and any other child in the situation. Mark Class established a foundation in 1994 called Class Kids that promotes an agenda to spare other children from Polly's fate. And he also said that he carries with him to this day the anger that he felt on the day he found out she died. Before the sentence was handed down, Mark Class asked the court to sentence Davis to death. In his statement, he addressed Davis and he basically said, justice would mean that you should commit suicide, but you're too cowardly and therefore you deserve the death penalty. Mr. Class then said, Mr. Davis, when you get where you're going, say hello to Hitler, say hello to Dahmer, say hello to Bundy and good riddance. The sooner you get there, the better off we all are. Now, Kath, while he was doing this address, he was really specifically looking at Davis. And at different times during his statement, the cameras panned to Richard Davis and he was smirking. So the court then allowed Davis to read a statement and he apologized in his statement to Polly's mother and her family. And it was very specifically to the mother. Yes, he did not mention the father. In fact, he ended with a disgusting statement designed to inflict pain on the angry Mark Class. Davis said he knew he did not commit a lewd act upon Polly because of the statement the young girl made to him when he was walking her up the embankment. She said, just don't do me like my dad. Now, as you can imagine, Kath, the court erupted and Mr. Class stands up and yells to him, burn in hell, you burn in hell. So, of course, the deputies rush over and they walk him out of the courtroom. They escort him out as he's leaving and he's saying it again and again. 
which of course was what everybody was thinking who was watching this nightmare. Before imposing his sentence, Judge Thomas Hastings looked directly at Richard Davis and said, Mr. Davis, this is always a traumatic and emotional decision for a judge. You've made it very easy today by your conduct. Judge Hastings then delivered the sentence recommended by the jury, death. 69-year-old Richard Allen Davis currently sits on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. We know this was a difficult episode. One with kids always is. So thanks for staying with us. And thank you for listening. 